0: Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and let's read. Um, we're going to start out with verse 11, and we're going to end up in chapter 6, verse 3. Here we go. We have much to say about this. Speaking of Melchizedek, by the way, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of the faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do just that. We will do so. Jesus, will you please speak to us through this today? Open our hearts to hear your voice. Thank you that you've already spoken through that incredible poem I pray that you would build off that, that you would integrate that into this, but Lord, also that you would speak from your, this passage straight to our souls, our minds, our hearts, that we could grow. That's what this passage is about, is growth. Speak, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, in order to keep tracking with uh, the great themes of this book, we need to remember that this book was written to Christians who felt like giving up. That is what we've got to keep in mind in order to understand it. Now, there are many reasons scattered throughout this letter as to why they were discouraged. But um, that's just the basic scenario. People were wanting to go back. So by and large, this letter is an attempt to inspire Christians to persevere. That's what this whole letter is about, inspiring Christians to to hang in there. It was more than just writing for their survival, by the way. The writer wants them to press on even more with strength and a sense of vitality. You can look at this letter as sort of a, um, like a locker room pep talk, so to speak. Not that you just stick in there, but that you go out and conquer, that you go out and win, that you go out and accomplish the purpose for which you were saved, to lay hold of it. So in an effort to do this, he brings a lot of reasons in for, their, for a case for their perseverance, to hang in there, to not give up, to, to hold fast, which is the title of this series. He reminds them, like for example, in chapter one, he reminds them that Jesus is greater than any other being, specifically any angelic being. That's a reason to persevere. He reminds them that Jesus is greater than Moses or the Old Testament system that's been fulfilled, that the new covenant is better in that sense. He, not, he warns them not to be like their ancestors who were unable to enter the promised land because of their unbelief and because of their doubt. He encourages them believe, believe, you know, doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs, he says. But one of the greatest truths that the writer uses to motivate. And he's going to really camp on this in the future. One of the greatest truths that he uses to motivate discouraged Christians is the truth that we have an ultimate high priest in heaven named Jesus Christ. Last time that we were together, the author told us that Jesus is the ultimate high priest in the sense that he's full of truth and compassion all at the same time. That makes him the greatest, the ultimate high priest. Now, that connects with many other ideas that the writer of the Hebrews wants to demonstrate to his readers, including ideas that have to do with the nature of the priesthood of Jesus. Um, And this might not make sense to us now, but I'll just throw it out there. He's going to get back to this in chapter 7. But there are two priesthoods that the writer is going to compare in the future. The first priesthood is called the Aaronic priesthood, um, and it comes from the Levitical high priest Aaron. The second is this pre- is the priesthood of a man named Melchizedek, this amazing character that just kind of streaks across the sky of the Old Testament. Um, he kind of appears, and then like a shooting star is gone, and the writer of the Hebrews gives him context and gives him meaning. But instead of explaining that, instead of diving into it, and instead of camping on it, um, and how Jesus is comes in the order of Melchizedek, he realizes that something just isn't quite right in the hearts and minds of the people that he's writing to. So he pauses right here. He stops. At this point in the book of Hebrews, he's not, he's not going to continue the discussion that he started about the priesthood or about Melchizedek, or about Aaron, or about any of those things. Like I said, he'll come back to it in chapter 7. We'll get all into that. But for the time being, he's not going to go any deeper into the high priestly character of Jesus, not until he addresses some issues in the hearts and minds of the people that he's writing to. Basically, he's saying, I want to take you deeper, but you're not ready. You're not ready yet. You're, not, you're just not gonna get it at this point. I could go deeper, but it'll go over your head because you're not ready. Why? Well, because they weren't, they weren't ready. They weren't mature enough. They weren't ready to grow in their relationship with the Lord. So today, we're going to explore this dilemma, and we're gonna learn a few things. One, we're gonna learn why they weren't ready to go fuller or deeper in their relationship with Jesus. Secondly, we're going to learn how they got that way, how they became stagnant, how they stopped growing. It's it's an alarming thing when, when even um, medically speaking, it's an alarming thing when someone stops growing when they ought to be growing. How does that happen spiritually? We're going to get into that. And thirdly, we're going to look at the solution. How can we jumpstart ourselves to keep growing in our relationship with the Lord again? First... He describes the problem in verse 11 through 12. Look at it with me. He says, we have much to say about Melchizedek, the priesthood, all of those things. I want to go into those things, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of of, of God's word all over again. In other words, we need to hit the do over button. He says, "You need milk and not solid food. In order for you to persevere, in order for you to stick in there, I got to remind you of some things all over again." That phrase, because you no longer try to understand, you know there's a really key to us understanding this. It's also translated in many of your translations, maybe even here, it says you're dull of hearing. Yes, there it is. Since you have become dull of hearing, In other words, something has become dull in you. You used to be able to hear, but now you can't because something has become dull in you. You can't understand because something has dulled your senses. You're you're hardened now. You're numb. So translators debate... um, translators debate on how to translate this phrase because it has very, it has dual implications. On the one hand, it has the sense of dull hearing, but in another sense, it could be translated, you no longer try to understand like it's been because there's something that they have done or allowed for them to get this way. It's both. In other words, your hearing has become dull because of something that you have been entertaining, something that you've been doing. He's saying you I mean, just bluntly, he's saying, you used to hear a lot better. You used to hear a lot better than you do now. You used to be eager. Do you remember those times? You used to be eager and would soak up the promises of God with zeal, and it seemed to produce more fruit in you. It seemed to have gone a lot further back in those days. You used to get more out of it, but now your heart's in and mind has become numb or dulled to spiritual things. You may think that it's the preacher's fault for preaching such boring sermons. Or you might think it's the musician's fault, which in our case happens to be the same guy. (laughs) You might think it's the musician's fault for not playing the right style of music. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there's an element of receptivity that God wants us to have when it comes to spiritual things. A readiness, an eagerness, a hunger, and a thirst for spiritual things, a drive. And if we don't have that sharpness of hearing, there's a limit to what God can actually do. There's a limit to what we can actually receive from God. You can only go so far. You're not ready for something that you, that you otherwise would be ready for and it would really benefit you if you were ready for it. And notice, because of their dull hearing, they are underdeveloped spiritually. So there's a a symptom to this problem. They're underdeveloped. They're not progressing the way they ought to be progressing. It uses the word, the way you ought to be. Look at verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk not solid food. In other words, he takes a look at the rate at which they're progressing in their Christian experience and pointedly tells them that they should be so much further along at this point. He's like a physician that's looking at all the signs and taking the measurements and looking at the data and he's realizing, okay, yes, everyone's on some kind of a spectrum, but still you ought to be further than where you're at right now. Sure, we all grow at different paces, absolutely. But still, still, you should be further than what you are right now. The idea of being teachers, by the way, is not referring to teaching from a pulpit or a platform like this. He's not saying you ought to be a church filled with preachers. That's not what he's saying. But rather, spiritually, you you should be regularly reproducing yourself into others. He's talking about what Christians call discipleship or evangelism. That should be happening. You should be mentoring others, aware or unawares, possibly. Maybe you're aware of what you're doing, maybe you're not. It should be naturally happening. He's saying that their lives should be examples that others are trying to follow. They should have a basic, rudimentary understanding of Christianity that they should be explaining it to younger Christians, helping them grasp and understand what it looks like to, be a, to walk with Jesus. They should be able to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Some of the best and most important teaching happen, that happens in life does not happen from a pulpit or a platform. But it happens as people just talk with each other about what God's doing in their lives. That's why, you know, when when we hang out before and after service, it is extremely valuable. When we have a meal together and we just talk and share our lives and specifically what God's doing in our life, not just talk about other things, politics and sports and those types of things, but when we get to what God is doing in our hearts and lives, oh, that's, that's some serious growth time right there. We come in with a certain perspective that runs into other people's perspectives and makes us look at things differently or gives us new ideas and how we should grow or inspires us again to get back up and, and keep moving. When we see another brother or sister that struggles with something that we struggle with and yet they're embracing the grace of God and keep moving on, it reminds us, oh, maybe I shouldn't get discouraged. I'm not alone here. And that's how community works. It happens when people share what God is teaching them with others it happens when someone shares what god has done in their own life just sharing a testimony it doesn't have to be so formal i'm going to share my testimony just say what god's doing what god's telling you and i've been convicted of this recently or god's been sharing this with me recently every one of us should be able to teach quote unquote one another at least in that sense and that should be happening to be honest I personally believe that this is the most powerful and effective way that Christians are taught. Christianity was designed to be passed down in in the context of a relationship. Do you understand that? In the context of relationship and community, one-on-one format, a group, a small group, or just doing life together with dear friends. As as important as teaching and preaching are, and they're very important. Obviously, we put a lot into them, but it can never take the place, ever take the place, of relational Christian discipleship. It doesn't, I am here today, probably, probably honestly because of some sermons that I now have forgotten. They did impact me, but I'll never forget the relationships that I had. Christians who loved me and that I loved, that we had each other's back. We loved each other enough to speak into each other's lives even when it was uncomfortable. We were able to converse one another. Young people desperately need and are crying out for mentors in their life. Desperately. Um, And that's why home groups are so important, by the way. That's why we have this kind of an an announcement. And as society begins to open up, we're gonna to continue to offer home groups and even revamp them and relaunch them and do those types of things and we'll keep you posted. But until then, start meeting together organically. Invite each other over to each other's house. Have game nights. Have, uh, provide opportunities where you can speak to one another and you can share and you can open your life. Take each other out to coffee. Start that now. We've got to start doing that again for our own health family dinners I um, there's a great website if you're interested if it's still up it's called familydinnerproject.org. org and it has a bunch of I don't think it's a Christian site but it has a bunch of statistics I think ran out of Purdue University where they studied that more the families that eat to eat dinner together more often their children are less likely to end up in prison they have higher GPA, grade point averages um, there's all sorts of um, measurable benefits from eating together around a table. We see it in this. The reason I love it is because Jesus's primary way of discipleship, we know this from the gospel of Luke. How does Luke show Jesus over and over and over again ministering to people? Eating with them, sharing a meal together. That's why our family meals here are so important, and why we're going to be doing a series of picnics and barbecues in the summer and get togethers because it's so important to get together, share pleasure together, eat and talk to one another about what God is doing in our lives, to share our struggles. We want to cre- cre- create as much possibility for those kinds of relationships as we possibly can. Don't wait, though, until they're on the church calendar. Do it yourself. Open it up. Invite people over. Have dinner. If you can't, uh, if you're struggling, you're tight on money. Let the church know. We'd love to help you out with that. To create those kinds of relationships, Um, invest in each other's children. This morning, we, uh, um, the Osbournes, and I had discipleship opportunities with our kids. They were they were interacting together and had a little mini. Fight, and we had a chance to help each other's kids work something out. That's beautiful. Do those types of things. Um, when I was a, a youth pastor, I actually interviewed every graduating class that left my ministry in, individually with each person. And one of the questions I asked them was, What do you wish you had more from your youth group experience here when you were in high school? And for four years straight, Every one of them, they had lots of different things, but the one thing that they had in common to answer this question was, I wish I had more older people from the church, not assigned to the youth group to help in the youth group, but from the church, older people, I wish they would have they would have shown more interest and mentored me. I thought that was fascinating. They were so hungry to have an older person show them how to live or show them how to what it means for a godly person to make a mistake, and to repent, and to get back up, to live out loud, to show others. I think that's one of the reasons why young people leave the church, because there's mentorship going on out there in the, in the culture. They are happy to mentor our young people, if we won't. And young people are hungry for it, Every one of us needs to be able to simply explain and share what God is showing us in the Scripture and in our own life, as He's writing our own letters on our hearts. In that sense, every Christian should be either um, should be either at that place or at least working towards that place. I'll tell you what: as a as a, a parent of a, of a little boy that I, his mom and I pray for him every day. We thank God every time one of you. St- directs him and helps him. That's an answer to prayer for us. It's like, yeah, it takes a village to raise a godly man. Absolutely. So jump in. It takes a village to be, it takes a village to have a good marriage. You know, when you get married, traditionally, when you get married and you pick your um, wedding party, it's not, now it's become you pick people that you just want to be there for that day right? And that's pretty special. But it used to be even more special because you picked people for your wedding party, your favorite guys, your favorite gals at your wedding party. You were saying, we need your help in our marriage. We're asking you to be committed to helping us as a married couple because we understand marriage is a community event. It's for society and it takes society to keep us together. Now we've become so individualistic. That marriage is, no one, don't speak into our marriage, it's super private. It used to be that, no, communities came alongside and helped. You didn't have to pay for that kind of thing. It happened. We need to get back to that. Every one of us needs to be able to simply share. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying in this letter, he's looking at this original audience that he's writing to, and he's imagining them in his mind as, as he's putting pen to paper, and he's saying, you should be there. But you're not. You're not there. One of the reasons you're not persevering and you're fragmenting and you're falling apart is because you're not sticking together. You're not teaching each other, mentoring each other, challenging each other, bearing the burdens of life together. I wanna go deeper with you about the priesthood and all these things, but I can't. You're not ready. This brings up an extremely important feature about spiritual life. Spiritual life is about continual progress, it's a living relationship. Okay? Our lives should be marked by growth. Our relationship with God is something that is living and therefore growing always blooming or being pruned so it can grow more. When there's setbacks, the Lord uses those setbacks to inspire us to grow and flower more. But a plateauing stagnation is deadly. It's a danger. This is a stark warning. In other words, the person who's been following Jesus for 10 years should be further along in their experience and in their knowledge and in their character and lifestyle than someone that's been following Jesus for two years. It's very basic. There should be a sense of continual progress that's being made. But it's not like that for everyone. I understand that. It's not the way it it is. For some, we've become stagnant. Uh, Someone once said, you haven't been a Christian for 10 years. You've been a Christian for two years, five times over. <laughs> in other words, yeah, there's 10 years on the calendar that you've been a Christian, but not 10 years worth of maturity. It's as if you're still a two-year-old in your walk with God. Look, that's not right. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, that's not right. Like any um, uh, you know, practitioner, in the medical field, um, that's especially dealing with children. They understand, on the one hand, all children grow at different rates. But there's certain parameters that if they're not meeting, there's cause to be concerned here. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Yeah, I get that you all grow at different paces. It's not so clear-cut. But there should be some things in place. Now, in a sense... This is nothing that we can produce. It comes naturally in spiritual life. Like children, they don't have to try to grow. If they're eating and, uh, in a healthy environment, they're going to grow, right? We can't, we, can't, um, st- we can't stop it, but we can't... Well, I guess we can stop it. We can prevent it. It comes naturally, but it can be interrupted. We can't interfere with our natural growth. Um, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 13 by telling a parable. He said, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came along and devoured them. There's an interruption. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no roots, they withered away. That's an interruption. That's an interference with life. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Right? That's an interruption. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's Jesus' explanation of that parable. He said, hear then the parable of the sower. This is down in verse 18 of Matthew 13. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, right? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is uh, is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution rises, like what the Hebrews are going through, on, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, hundreds. In another case, 60. In another case, 30. In other words, there's, there's that rate of growth. It's all different, but there's growth. We need to be... Con- in other words... All- we need to be continually weeding and gardening our own hearts. What is that... So we don't get choked out. What does that look like? It looks like repentance. Saying no to myself. Self-denial. Taking up your cross every day. Your heart is like a garden. That's why Proverbs says, Solomon in Proverbs says, Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Guard your heart... It put life, effort, creativity into your soul. And beautiful things start to spring forward. Uh, You know, us parents of little ones, we get this. Uh, On Easter, Noble was having an Easter egg hunt, and he was finding all the eggs. And um, he noticed that another little girl was sad that she didn't have any eggs, and so he took an egg out of his basket and said, here, I want you to have one of my eggs. Didn't know anyone was looking. He didn't know I was watching him. It was just between those two. No treats involved. That's, That's a flower budding in the garden of that little boy's heart. Right? Now, it took a lot of weeding to get there. (laughs) it took a lot of effort, a lot of tilling the soil, a lot of pulling rocks out, a lot of teaching him how to guard and what to ingest, what to reject, ways to think, ways not to think, all of those things. That's parenting, right? We've got to do that to our own heart also and guard our own souls. And you're going to find that what's going to grow in the garden of your heart is what you let seeds go in there. You let seeds go in, you're going to reap weeds. And a lot of us, we need to repent and uproot and retill the soil and make sure that life is in an environment in which it can grow. And this is where the original readers were stuck. Worry, fear, doubt were choking them out, stunting their growth, the issues of life, the politics of the Roman government. The pressure from the Jewish community, all of those things were dulling their hearing of God's word and his grace. We're in the same, we have the same temptations. It says at the end of verse 12 that they've come to now need milk. Milk represents the basics of the Christian faith, it's not bad. Milk is not, it's not a bad thing. No one's trying to say here that there's no place for the, for the basic things of Christian faith anymore. That's not what we're saying, okay? It's not that we don't need the basic things anymore, but the challenge is that we need to find a way to delve further into those basic things or to go deeper with them, to keep growing. We need to understand them greater. We need to realize more and more of their implications for our lives, and I'll tell you what, as someone who has been studying the Bible now for a long time, I, just last week, you guys, Thursday, just last Thursday, I was studying a very familiar <clears throat> passage in Mark, and I saw, I saw something that was old to me, and yet it had become new, and I started weeping again and I fell in love with Jesus all over again. My point is, it's bottomless. If you are to the point where you think, well, yeah, I pretty much got Christianity down, you are wrong. You can know right now, that's the first sign that your ears have been dulled. You, there's always more. Always more, and he'll keep, he's living, which means he'll keep talking to you in new ways, maybe with old familiar things, but he'll make it fresh and new again. You can always grow, he will always speak. One basic truth here's an example, let me give you a few examples. One basic truth that in the Christian life is the knowledge that you're a sinner. But 10 years in, you should realize that deeper and better now. I am am continually growing in the knowledge that I am a sinner. That's one thing that I keep getting... Wow, I can't... I still... Wow. You can see that in the Apostle Paul's writing. He progressively calls himself, yeah, I'm a sinner. And by the end of it, he says, "I'm, I'm a chief of sinners. He realizes this more and more. There's something, um, another thing, Jesus is, Jesus is a savior and he died on the cross for my sins. Pretty basic Christian truth, right? But at 10 years in, we should realize that deeper and even better. We should keep being shocked by that, surprised by that, uh, uh, being brought alive by that, refreshed by that. In other words, for someone to be like a little baby over and over and over and over again, relearning the same things over and over and over again, is inappropriate. There's something wonderful about um, Benjamin Engel or Little Dorr Anderson or Quinn Sutton. There's something beautiful about, the, about those infants. They're eating what's appropriate for them at this stage in their development. We would never say to them, stop, stop e- drinking milk grow up. It's appropriate for now. But for some, when they turn 16 or 17 years old and they're still only eating milk or sugar or, or, you know, only those things, we say, okay, that's abnormal. There's something wrong with that. It's going to affect your health. That's what he's saying to the Hebrews. He's saying, basically, you're too old to be like this. That's what he's saying. You're too old to be like this. You're abnormal in your development, he would say. Not as a shameful way, but just as a practitioner would say, would assess the situation and would say, yeah, there's a problem with your diet. Well, let's see how they got to be this way. In verse 13 through 14, it says, anyone who lives on milk begins uh, being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. One of the manifestations of this level of immaturity is that a person is, quote, not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness, end quote. That's one symptom of immaturity. This term, teachings of righteousness, is referring to the philosophy of how someone becomes right with God. These Hebrew Christians were going back to the belief that they had to pay to be right with God, that they had to earn their right standing with God through the Mosaic law. That was their temptation to go back to this. In other words, they're still trying to prove themselves. That's what kids do, right? I mean, really, that's what kids do. That's what nobles doing. That's what kids, they're still trying to figure out who they are. A mark of immaturity is that you're still trying to figure yourself out in terms of your value and your worth. You're still trying to prove things to yourself. That's a mark of immaturity, spiritually speaking. They're still trying to save themselves through their own good or moral behavior in this case. And that's what these Hebrew Christians were doing. They weren't secure in who they were because of Christ, but still trying to prove themselves by their behavior, by their work. Now, Someone that first becomes a Christian, we we don't expect them to know different, right? We understand they're still they're still trying to understand what they just signed up for, what they've just become. We don't expect them to understand all the implications of um, of how they try to save themselves. That's going to be revealed more and more over time through, they, they make mistakes, more grace is applied to them. They find out that God's grace is, is infinite and their right standing has nothing to do with it. And they'll reveal that over time. I've seen that several times. Christians, they keep learning that and there's progression. But when you still don't understand that there's nothing you can do to earn being right with God 10 years in, that's a mark of immaturity. There's a, there's, a, there's a growth that needs to happen in that. If you're still coming to church, for example, because it makes you feel like you're a little less sinful than those other people. If you're still reading your Bible to prove that God, um, to, prove to God and yourself, probably, that you're, that you're worthy of his affection. Look, I've earned your love and your affection. Or maybe you feel a little bit better about yourself when you do. There's something abnormal and stunted in your growth. Um, if you still judge others for things like, I don't know, like the kind of clothes they wear or the color of their hair or, or what music they listen to or what programs they're watching on TV and you're judging their and you feel better because you're not and they are and, and all of those things, those are signs of immaturity in your life. If that's you, you're still part of a failed religious system and the implications of Jesus being your high priest later on in chapter seven, they're not gonna help you. You can't move on to that part yet. You'll, you'll, you're just simply gonna look at that deeper truth through your grid of religious philosophy. It won't actually, in fact, it could actually get worse. That's why the writer of the Hebrews is saying, if I kept going with you about this priesthood part of Jesus, unless you first unlearn some things, and go back to the uh, uh, the beginning stuff, this will only harm you. So, understanding righteousness and that it comes by faith in Jesus Christ is connected with solid food. You can relax. You're secure in Christ. Whether you forgot to read or whether you slept in through church or whether you uh, you know, had some other bad behavior that hurt some friends, all of those things. There are consequences for all those things, but it doesn't touch your identity and who you are in Christ. You're a child of God. We're constantly, I keep using Noble as an example because it's talking about raising children and immaturity. We're constantly telling Noble, buddy, you're, you've done something naughty. You're not naughty. In other words, we're protecting his identity. You're a good boy, you're part of our family, you always will be, and you sometimes do naughty things. I do that too. And we're, we're trying very consciously to, to separate him from his behavior and say, no, 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 this is who you are, your identity's intact, you're a manje, you're part of our family, that will always be. But you do some naughty things sometimes. <laughs> and that's part of growing. And what's also connected with solid food is this phrase, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Uh, Some of your translations have translated it, trained themselves or or exercised. You've exercised. That's a good way of putting it, I think. Um, Discerning good and evil is a trained skill that comes through practice and habit. You know that? It's not, discerning good and evil is not something you either have or you don't have. It's like a muscle that you do have that needs to be exercised and trained so that it can be used fully. In other words, the more you seek to discern between good and evil, the way God tells you to, um, the, better, the better at it you'll be and the more natural it'll become. And the skill of discerning good from evil is exercised as it's used Notice the phrase there. It says, by reason of use, the more faith you exercise, the more faith you'll gain. It's, I mean, it's, it's just like real exercise. When you lift weights, so I've heard, because I don't, I don't do that type of thing. <laughs> but <laughs> when you lift weights, you're trained, you're, what is it? Uh, exor- exercise is very repetitious. You're doing it over and over. You know, when they say, do three reps, It's repeating, repeating, exercise, use. You're tearing muscles. You're making them weak on purpose so they grow back stronger. The scar tissue that comes up over that makes more muscle, that makes you stronger so that you can use your body to its fullest potential. It's the same type of... That's the metaphor he's using here for, for discernment. The ability to discern is one critical marking point of those who are spiritually mature. People who are immature do not have a well-developed sense of discernment, like a, like, a, like a toddler, right? A toddler will just put anything into its mouth, right? They have a discernment problem. They'll just grab and, I want to see what that tastes like, and they'll just throw it into their mouth. But when we practice discernment, the older they get, they know, that they know some things are yucky and some things aren't. Now, flowing into chapter 6, he's going to tell us how we can move beyond this. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. So after talking about their, their proclivity towards immature things, he asks them to repent of it and move on from those things so that he can teach them other things. He can teach them further things. Basically, he's saying, in light of that, if you're ready to move on, well, then let's Let's relearn this stuff so we can get on to some deeper stuff. He doesn't keep them stuck there. It's not a rebuke that just says, hey, you guys are immature, and then he walks out. He says, no, let's move beyond this. The idea behind the word of maturity is not perfection, by the way. The idea behind the word of maturity in the Greek is more completeness. It's about being complete. Now, completeness isn't the idea of being perfect. It's the idea of being appropriately developed, that's the idea of completeness, being appropriately developed. So he's saying, let's leave these things behind and let's press on to an appropriate maturity. Here's the hope in all of this. Yeah, uh, you know, when you go to a when you go to a gym, you understand in the context of a gym that you are on a, You are progressively working towards a goal. It's not pass or fail, is it? If you're working with a tra- personal trainer, a personal trainer does not come to you and say, oh. You're not there yet. No, I reject you. No, they assess where you are, and sometimes they say some things that's hard to hear. But then they say, let's start working to get beyond that. That's what's going on here in the passage. It's not a, and so much in our Christian culture today, especially in the West, we think of Christianity as a pass or fail. And that's where the shame comes in. We're so shameful. Either you're this or you're not. And if you're not, hide, right? It's kind of like that at the gym. I hate going to the gym, right? Because there's all these people that are like, Pakow! and I'm like, oh. you know, I'm not there yet. There's so many people at the gym where I just want to say, you're done. <laughs> like, you don't have to be here anymore. You're done now. This place is for people like me, <laughs> you know? Go home. But, you know, it, it's a progression. And Christianity is that way. It's something that we are we have the freedom to improve. If you can think of Christianity in a little more of a playful, curious kind of a way, where you can take your shortcomings and your failures and your immaturities, not as a shame thing, but as something that, okay, I can see where I need to, I need to do more reps with the dumbbell, or next time I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the treadmill a little bit more, or whatever. And think of it as a, as a place that you're going rather than something you're either, you either are or you're not, even though you are a Christian and you're working into that Christianity at the same time. How? He says, he tells us how, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction and cleansing rites, uh, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. Okay, quick point. This is this is I just want to point something out. In other words, he's saying that these are some of the basic principles that we want to go beyond and not remain stuck in. You notice a list here. Okay. Um, and right after this, beginning in verse 4, by the way, is one of the probably one of the most controversial sections of scripture in the entire New Testament. In fact, we're gonna divide that into two sermons because there's so much to cover. That's where, uh, that's where the fireworks start to really fly is if you keep reading, you'll see why. But in the first three verses is also something very powerful and challenging and really important and critical um, that we need to understand this. He gives a list of six things. Let me just read them off to you. Repentance from dead works, the resurrection of the dead, Faith towards God, eternal judgment, the laying on of hands, and baptism. Now listen, I read those to you um, I read those to you out of order, and I'll show you why in, a, in just a second. but the writer of the Hebrews, listen, is not saying that these are the first six things that you need to understand if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. I've heard that preached and taught so many times, but I'll show you why that doesn't make sense in a second. He's not saying. These first six things are what you need to know to be a Christian, and then you can move on from there. Here's why. Look at the list. Does anybody notice anything missing of what it, basically what it means to be a Christian? Like any mention of Jesus and the cross at all? There's no mention of that. There's no, well, at least there's no direct reference. I mean, you can stretch it if you're good at stretching things like that, but there's no direct reference there to the person and work of Jesus at all. So because of that, I don't think that he's saying these are the first six most important things that anybody should learn if they're gonna follow Jesus. So what does he mean? Well, let me give you another way of looking at this list. L- look at this list again and ask yourself, um, how, do I, how do I say this? What on the list is also shared with Judaism? Judaism. Put it that way. What on the list is also shared with Judaism? Remember that he didn't write this letter to Christians with a pagan background. This is a letter written to Christians with a Jewish background. So in light of that, what on this list does not correspond or relate to Judaism? Did Judaism teach repentance from dead works? Say yes. Yes. Did Judaism teach the resurrection from the dead? Not in the same way, but basically, yes. Generally, yes. Did Judaism teach faith towards God? Yes. Uh, What about eternal judgment? What about the laying on of hands? Yes. And then you say, baptism. That's it. Baptism was distinctly Christian. They didn't have anything like that in Judaism. But here's the interesting thing some of this, in fact, in some of your translations, the word translated baptism is not your typical word to mean Christian baptism in the the Christian sense. It's most translations here in the Greek, they commonly translate it as ceremonial washings. Okay, so let me ask you again. Did Judaism have ceremonial washings? Yes. So here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I think. What he's describing in these six things are not distinctly Christian washings. Doctrines or basic Christianity because it doesn't mention the cross of Jesus at all. But what he's mentioning here are six things that are true in Christianity. They are, but they are also true in Judaism. The list represents a common ground list between Christianity and Judaism. Keep following me on this because uh, this is really important. Think about Christianity and Judaism. Does, do Christianity and Judaism share certain doctrines? Yes, right? Of course they do. They aren't two separate circles, but they're two circles with an overlap in the middle. And this is the list of the overlap in the middle. Every one of those things listed in verse one and two, every one is found in that overlap. This is the middle ground list that he's talking about. Are you seeing what these ancient discouraged Christians were doing Because they were discouraged and being persecuted, they were tempted to retreat back into the inoffensive middle. A place where we could all agree. We can all get along. No one would persecute them for preaching repentance from dead works because the the Jews preached that also. No one's gonna persecute them for preaching the resurrection of the dead. No one's gonna persecute them for preaching baptism. The temptation was to retreat into a safe, common ground encompassed by both Judaism and Christianity. And you say, so what's wrong with that, Mike? Shouldn't we major on what we agree on and and disagree on what, what we don't? Well, the problem is not what's there. The problem is what's not there. The cross, the cross is outside of the common ground. So if you say, So that I don't offend anybody, I'm going to retreat back to the inoffensive common ground. You're going to keep some things that are still Christian, but you're going to deny things, you're going to deny the things that are distinctly Christian. You'll keep the things that are Christian, but deny the things that, for example, what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we're sinners. No one likes that. And that someone else had to pay our debt. That's where we're going to get, that's where the, again, what's the, what's the, What's the point of this series? What's the title of the series? Hold fast. Don't retreat. Hold the line. This couldn't be more relevant to you and I right now. Think of our modern culture and Christianity. Modern culture has values and its own doctrines and dogmas. And now between between modern culture and Christianity, is there some overlap? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There are some things that are important to the modern culture today and that are important to Christianity. The culture says that we should love one another. So does Christianity. The culture says that we should help one another. So does Christianity. The culture says that we should take care of the planet. So does Christianity. So here's the problem. If you live your entire Christian life in the safe middle ground and you don't offend anyone, then you've lost your distinctive Christian quality. We're not doing any good. We're not moving the ball forward. We're not growing. And that's the price that's too high for us to pay, you guys. He's saying, hold the line. But we will never let, we can never let go of the cross. We can can say, yes, the Bible says to love one another. Yes, the Bible says to take care of the planet. But we've never let go of the cross, even if we're mocked for it. Hold the line. The line, the temptation to retreat into the modern world in Seattle is really powerful. It's a really powerful temptation to major on what we agree on only. We want to retreat into this non-offensive common ground. What does it mean to be a Christian? You guys, what is distinctively Christian? It means a cross. You have sinned. And the penalty for your sins is death. But God loves you so much that he died on the cross and took the penalty of his sins upon himself. That part is distinctly Christian. And we dare not give that up because it's the power of salvation. Paul walked into Rome, the most powerful city on the planet, and he said, I'll talk. You want to talk about power? Power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God not just to conquer the world but to conquer the soul and to save the soul. The cross is that power, not the secondary stuff. And that's the only way we can grow. It means to repent of your sins. They're not going to want to hear that. It's repent. Repent. And to give your life to Jesus Christ. In other words, to submit to him as Lord and your king. He's not your president. You don't get a vote. He's king. You bow and you say, what do you want? That's what it means. That's what Christians are. We live under a monarchy. We're servants of the king. And that's how we grow. Amen?